1934, a missionary decided to take his family and reach a part of the world that no one had gone to before. In 1934, Ethiopia wasn't a place you wanted to go to. Um, war criminals were rampant. Genocide was happening, and frankly, no one really wanted to go except for a doctor. A doctor took his family, Dr. Thomas Lambie, and he went to Ethiopia. He went under the curtain, and for numerous months, he sought out to reach out to people through medical missions. Dr. Lambie did this day in and day out. He was often persecuted. When people would find out that he was a Christian, he was ridiculed, he was threatened with his life, with his family's life. And they would spend time in the evening praying and asking God, Lord, how would you help us through this for your namesake? And God kept saying, stay. And so they did. After time, the government began to warm up to Dr. Lambie because he kept reaching out to people that, frankly, no one would reach. And finally, uh, there came a day that Dr. Lambie decided it was time to set up a mission station in Ethiopia. The only problem was this, Dr. Lambie could not purchase land because he was of American descent. Ethiopia would not let an, a non-national buy anything. And so to buy land and to keep the gospel going, Dr. Lambie gave up his citizenship and became an Ethiopian so that he might reach people for Christ. Dr. Lambie was somebody that in missions work, everybody cheers for, but Dr. Lambie didn't go about it for the cheers of men. Instead, he had one purpose, show people the Jesus he loved so much. I believe that Christianity comes down to a few key statements, but one of those is this. As a Christian, you are given citizenship to heaven. And because of that, you should live like it. I, I'm a proud American. I don't know about y'all, but I really love our country. I love every time I hear the national anthem. It moves my heart. I love seeing flags that are opened up and hung on a pole and, and raised up. It's powerful to me. I don't know about y'all, but I look forward to the Olympics every year and our Olympic athletes winning at Olympics and getting to hear the national anthem sung amongst all the nations. It makes me proud to be an American. And like you, every time I go and hear a, a choir at a school sing the national anthem, it brings a tear to my eye. It's powerful. I love being an American. But it is not my home. It's my passing through place. We're given such a short amount of time on planet earth. And frankly, we don't know the time or the hour that God's going to call us home. And in the amount of time he gives us, one thing that we know for certain is this. Whatever your true citizenship is, you'll give the greatest honor to. So whatever the greatest citizenship is of your life, will get your highest honor and praise. You'll thank for it, you'll give for it, you'll die for it. And every year we see that as Americans that we have brave men and women who do just that, not only on battlefields far from us, but in city streets. Our law enforcement, our ambulance workers, our firefighters who give of themselves for the same purpose. It makes us proud, doesn't it? Can you just imagine how proud God is of his saints 
when they act like heaven is their home. So let's talk about citizenship. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 1. Starting in verse 27, he says this, just one thing. And I want to stop there so you capture this. Paul is writing and writing and writing in chapter 1. And he gets to this and he's like, stop everything. Just one thing. Pause here for a second. Take your moment. Just one thing as citizens of heaven live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I'll hear that you are stand, or I will hear about you and that you're standing firm in one spirit and one accord, continuing together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is the sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Paul is giving so much theology in just a small amount of verses. In these three verses, he, four verses, he's going to move us pretty quickly through theology. And he's going to ask of us to go deeper with him. Paul understood Christianity so deeply that God gave him such inspiration to write the majority of the New Testament. So when we deal with Paul in theology, we're asked to go to a deeper level. We're asked to take a step away from elementary teaching and into a, almost a collegiate setting of faith. Because Paul isn't asking us just to be okay as Christians. He's asking us to suffer as Christians. And that moment of understanding doesn't stay juvenile in nature. Paul always calls the church to grow older in faith, to grow deeper in faith, to dive deeper into the word. And so let's look at it. First is this. Faith gives us a change of citizenship. He marks it there. He says it. Just one thing is citizens of heaven. Now listen, most of the people reading this book would have got that they had a citizenship. That they belonged to a region, an area. I mean, certainly you and I, as we read this, we're Americans. We live in Texas, which is almost as good by itself. And so because of all of that, Paul gets it, and so did they. But he reminds them of this. You have a citizenship. You have a belonging. And because of that belonging, it matters that you and I remember this. That we write it on our hearts, that we keep our eyes open to it, that you have a home. And this isn't it. So if you are a citizen of a place better than this, it should be attractional to other people as you're heading that direction. Because we live in America, we don't get it. We don't understand the fortune we have of being born into this country. But I can promise you this, my friends who have migrated, who have come across to America, come because of a promise they've heard. That this is a land of opportunity. That if you work hard enough, anything can be yours. This is not true in most other places. You're not given opportunities. You don't have the same availability of fortune. Even if you work hard, you can work hard all your life and have nothing. But not so in America. You remember the, uh, the cartoon about Fievel and his family? Remember this? The American tell they, they're all coming to America because there's no cats in America. And the streets are filled with 
Jeez. Man, it was an amazing song, right? Y'all remember this movie? If not, go back and watch it. It's amazing. America. Anyways, um, everybody has this promise that can be had here. But here's the greatest promises ever. Jesus says, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. That where I'm going, you too may come. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you so. But I'm going there to prepare a place that where I am, I can come back and take you to be with me. How much greater could the world be if everyone understood that Jesus was preparing a place better than this one? What if on the news every day, after hearing all of the garbage that's going on in our world and all of the craziness in Washington and all of the, the super crazy people shooting everybody everywhere, we heard this. But we want to end our broadcast with this. Heaven is better. You should go there. Have a good evening. Everybody be like, what? Or how about this one? We're going to pass over to Bob. Bob, how's heaven? Heaven's great. Y'all should be here. No traffic. No smog. No plastic in the oceans. Be here. Thanks, Bob. Now to the weather. That would be awesome. Mind-blowing. But see, that's exactly what heaven is. It's not this. This is going to fail, and we get this. If you study scripture, you realize this. Our earth is not sustainable. As much as we may try, it's not meant to. It's not meant to sustain. It's meant to fade out eventually because it's not eternal. There's one eternal place. It's a place we call heaven. And for those that know Jesus Christ, you have citizenship there. You belong there. And this time that we go through the pain, the suffering, all of those things are a mild stop on the way to eternal glory with God. Powerful. And God prepared it for you in Christ. Amazing. In Ephesians, we get Paul writing about it again. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then we're no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. You're not a foreigner. You belong with God. It's amazing. It's powerful. And the most amazing thing about heaven is this. It will look more diverse and more, I want to say the word, but I want you to capture this, inclusive than we even agree to this side of heaven. And I want to qualify that with a statement. I was reading the other, or watching the other day on YouTube, a, a Protestant man that's going around to visit other faiths. He goes into their places of worship, and then he sits down with the leader of that church, and they talk about their belief system. And he finally goes to a man uh, who sits across from him, and he says, so tell me, who gets to heaven? And the man said, well, there's two answers to that question. Number one, all of those who place their hope and faith in Jesus. And number two, you and I won't know that answer of who made that decision. And he sat there and went, hmm, won't it be a, an amazing heaven when we get there and go, I didn't know. I didn't know. Hey, they made it here. Yeah, but they vote differently than I do. They made it here. 
Oh, but listen, I don't like them at all. The most amazing thing about heaven is you and I aren't in charge of who gets in. Jesus is. Now, I hope you capture this. Every one of us will at some point end this life. And we had better have our citizenship there in time. And today should be your day. I hope you don't leave this room without knowing for certain that you personally know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It can't be your parents' faith. Their faith can't get you to heaven. It can't be your grandparents' faith. Their faith is not big enough for you to be included in it. In fact, it can't be your church's faith. Your church cannot get you to heaven. If so, Jesus would be unnecessary. It can't be your nation's faith. Just because you were born in America does not mean you get heaven. So it has to be your faith. Do you know? Not does your wife know, not do your kids know, not did your parents know, not does your neighbor know or your pastor know. You have to know Jesus personally. I wish with all of my heart that when God called me into ministry, he gave me a magic um, salvation wand. And that everybody I ran into, I went, bing, and y'all were saved. I wish, I'm telling you, that would be the desire of my heart. Because I can't fix a lot of things in your life, but I wish I could do that. I wish with all of me, I could just, bing, and you're like, wow, saved. But then that wand would become your Jesus. And then I would become your Jesus. And there is only one Jesus. So let me ask the question. It's the very question that Paul gives the answer to. How do we know that we're living in a worthy manner before Jesus? How do we know that we're really doing this right? How do we know that this worthiness that Paul calls us to in 27 when he says, one thing, as that citizen of heaven, live your your wife, live your life worthy of the gospel. And I'm sure if they had stopped reading there, they'd have gone, how? How do I know if I'm doing this thing right? Because like this, I'm a golfer. And in golf world, you get a certain number of shots per hole to make it in the hole. And if you hit more than that, you're doing it wrong. If you do it less, you're doing it extraordinarily great. But if you do it just at the certain number every hole gives you, you're doing it right. And in, in my world, when it comes to golf, that makes complete sense. But does God give us the number? Do we have the outcome? Does Paul even qualify this? Or is he just saying, do your best? Because if it's just doing your best, we all could be doing our bare minimum best and it'd be worthy. I'm doing okay. I'm doing it better than this guy sitting in the pew next to me. Don't make any looks. Please don't do that. Stop nudging. Quit nudging your husband. Um, That's not nice. But so he gives it to us. He tells us how. First, he qualifies this. He's riding to the Philippian church in Philippi, and he's like, listen, whether I show up or not, here's how I'll know that you're doing this right. He says, I'll hear about you and that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. 
How do we know we're living our lives worthy of the gospel? How do we know we're doing it? Well, we are living worthy when we're standing firm in unity with Jesus. Now, I, I want you to hear this because we talk unity as, as far as it goes to like churches. Oh, that church is unified. Well, you can be unified heading towards hell. You can be unified completely anti-gospel. So we don't need to unify just as a church and be like, hey, we're all together. We unify in Jesus. When we unify in him, everything changes. We start to capture this a little bit different in our mind. In Ephesians 6, 13, he says this, For this reason, I take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. When a church puts on the full armor of God together, and we take our stand, we're not standing in each other's armor. We're not hoping each other gives us strength. We're not hoping each other gives us the applause we want. No, we're standing firm in Jesus. That standing in Jesus allows us to be changed. It allows us to unify the right way. Have you ever seen a team, basketball, football, whatever it is, baseball, that's just disunified? They have no common purpose. They all play for their own glory, their own name. It's awful. You can have the greatest player on a team, and they can lose big time. Some of y'all remember a few years back, LeBron James decided that he was going to go back to Cleveland. He had left, he had won a championship with Miami, and he went back to Cleveland. Do y'all remember what that first year at Cleveland looked like? Awful. Awful. You know why? Because there was no unity. They had no common purpose. They had no common goal. It was whoever wanted to be the best was going to be the best. It didn't matter who had the outcome. But see, this is what we unify with Jesus in because it matters. The gifts that you bring to the table, what God's poured into you, he wants you to use. And as we all use our gifts together for his common purpose, Jesus changes the world. He changes the world. A few years back, my family decided that we were going to take our kids, we had saved up, um, and we're going to go to Disneyland. And so we, we loaded up, we drove all the way there, had a great time. As we walked in, uh, like our second day of going, we were exhausted. We were just tired. Uh, that year, um, the new ride, the Cars ride, had opened. And we decided we were going to stand in line for the Cars ride. It's brand new. And as a family, we were going to make it happen. So we're standing in line, and I guess it was about two and a half hours in, we had moved about a tenth of a mile in the line. Our kids were tired. We were tired. We looked at each other, and finally we were fed up. We were like, you know what, this isn't worth it. We're wasting our whole day to ride a ride, and we're done. And this is the motion we're taking. Y'all ready to go out? And our kids are like, are you talking to us? We're so dehydrated. We don't even know what's going on. And we start to turn around to leave, and a Disney employee walks up. Disney magic. They go, come with me. And we're like, oh, great. They're going to move us to the back of the line since we're complaining so much. And they walked us all the way up to the front. We bypassed probably another hour's wait in line to the very front. 
And there was like six seats in the ride, and there's two people here and us, and they put us on the ride together. April goes, oh, I guess they pulled us to put, you, put us on the ride because there's only two of you. They said, no, they pulled us out of the line as well. All of a sudden, we realized Disney is spying on us. Um, that's why they're buying everything up. Anyways, no. What, what we realized was this. At Disney, they have one purpose in mind. To make sure that when you go home, you go, you know where we went? Disney. It was awesome. Because what did we do when we came home? We didn't say, man, we stood in line forever in this dumb ride. No, we said, oh, man, it was so cool. We got to ride all these cool rides and we got to do all this. That story didn't make our highlight real. Because they got it. They had a purpose. And you have a purpose. In verse 27, it starts with it. You are a citizen of heaven. Your purpose is to remember where you belong. Because when you know where you come from, you'll talk about it. I've told you before, I grew up in Sundown, Texas. Sundown is one of those places, if you're not driving to Sundown, you don't even get lost there. You have to take roads to get to Sundown because all the roads come out of Sundown. Like if you got there by mistake, you are really somebody that gets lost. Dairy Queen would not put up a Dairy Queen in sundown because no one goes through sundown. That's how bad the town, I mean, there's just nowhere. But I'm from there. I'm from that town. I have the letter jacket. I've got a senior ring from there. And I mean, I'm still the pride of the oil patch. That's what we would say to each other. I played football on Slaughter Field. (laughs) Your field wasn't named that, but we got slaughtered there a lot. Um, But when we start to live like we're from somewhere, we'll act like it everywhere we go. We'll show it off. We'll talk about it. We're proud of it. We don't hide it away. We tell people, I'm from there. The flip side of that coin is this. I did not graduate high school on sundown. We moved at the end of my junior year and moved to Odessa, Texas. The oil patch. Odessa smells like the oil patch. I was born there, we moved away from there, and we moved back there to Odessa. Slodetha, Texas. But you know what happened when I got there? I graduated, didn't get a new senior ring, didn't get a new letterman jacket, got a diploma, got the letter from the senator I've never met before, telling me congratulations, you graduated. But I did get married there. Met my wife there. Ask us if we want to move back there. Nah. When people ask me where I'm from, you know what I say? Amarillo. It's been the longest we've ever lived anywhere in our lives. My whole growing up life, I never lived anywhere longer than 10 years. Never. It's where we're from. So everywhere I go, Everywhere we go, we tell people, we're from Amarillo. And they go, where? We go, well, if you hold Texas like this, right there. But where you're from matters. You'll tell people about it. You're also living worthy when you're contending for 
the faith. Now I want you to understand what contending means. It doesn't mean that you have to fight for the faith. Faith can do its own fighting. It just means that when the world comes, you stand in it. That when everything is going south, you stand on your faith. So here's your participatory part of the service. We've all gone through things that have been devastating, life-changing, body-hurting, mind-consuming. You may have gone through depression. You may have gone through suicidal thoughts. Whatever it is, when you've ever gone through something that you would say has been life-altering, and you held on to your faith, if you've done that in your life and you've held on to faith and made it through it, raise your hand. You made it through that devastating time in your life. Because it, it's not something we go, oh, well, I made it through and, you know, it's because I held on to Jesus. No, you didn't. No, I didn't. None of us could. You know why? We're devastated. We're wrecked. But he holds on to us. He carries us through it. I think that that's a reminder of when you count upon living life worthy, you have to know this. You and I are not strong enough to hold on to Jesus. But man, I'm so thankful he's strong enough to hold on to me. Because man, I put him through the ringer. And if we're being honest, we all have. We're living life worthy when we're no longer afraid of opposition. Romans 8 says this, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing can pry you away from him. Nothing. Not your worst day, not your best day. Nothing. When you lose your fear of the opposition, you'll remind yourself of this. There is zero opposition that can take Jesus out. Can't even get close. Not a fair fight. Not your fears, not your anxiety, not your depression, not your past, not your future, not your present. Nothing. Not the best, not the weakest, not the strongest, not the mildest. Nothing. Even qualifies it like this. Not even angels can separate you from the love of God. Not even rulers. Nothing can separate you from God. Not because you have strength enough, but because he does. So when our citizenship is in him, nothing can take it away. Nothing. Not even little old us. You know, we sang some amazing songs this morning. I'm very thankful to Grant and our team that leads us every Sunday. Those words that we sang today, as we sang them to the Lord, as we made declarations before God, like what a wonderful name his is, what a powerful name his is, All these words as we sing them to God, what we're really saying is this. May this anthem continue in my life until I'm singing it face to face with you. We should win our practice over this side of heaven, shouldn't we? But Paul ends his uh, portion of writing here with something strange. He tells them to, to live their life worthy. And then he qualifies the end of this worthiness in verse 29. I want you to see it this morning. It says this, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. 
not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. How is it that it's been granted to us on Christ's behalf to not just believe in him, but to suffer? That's not something you want to hear, right? Like, I want to rejoice for him. I want to get rich for him. I want to be known for him. I want all this stuff. And, and Paul's like, here's the thing. If you're going to contend for the faith, if you're going to live a life worthy of him, it comes with something. Belief and suffering. But look at what he says in Romans 8. Romans 8, 17 reads like this. And if we're children, we're also heirs. Heirs to God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of the present time are of no worth compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Which just simply says this. No matter the depth of suffering, it can't be better than the greatness of his glory. The hardship of faith is this. Living for Jesus will cost us. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you popularity. It may cost your livelihood. It may cost your homes. It may cost your relationships. It may cost all. But I remember as a child, I used to sing, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. The hardship of surrendering something is you can't hold on to it. Not even our lives, not even our joy, not even our present, not even our circumstances. My question to you is this. Are you willing in life to give Jesus your everything? Not just your some things, your everything. This is faith. This is obedience. And when I read scripture, it says we are to daily die to self so that he might live in us. So how do you know you're living a life worthy of Jesus? You're giving everything to him. You're surrendering all. Kind of like our friend, Dr. Thomas Lambie. It's time that some of us in this room gave up our citizenship this side of heaven, for citizenship there. And we start acting like we belong with him. That's my prayer for you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, today's your day. Today's your day to give up everything for the sake of knowing Jesus and the fullness of him in your life. Don't hold back any longer. Don't hold on any longer. Give him everything. And be one of those people called a citizen of heaven. Living your life in a worthy way. And giving everything no matter the cost for the sake of knowing Jesus deeply. When I was a kid, we had opportunity to tour the state house in Austin. It had been renovated and as a band, we got to walk down the streets and play. We stood outside and got to hear former governors and the current governor at the time give a speech. And at that speech, we were standing there, and, and we got to meet George W. Bush. Here's the thing about George W. He doesn't know me from nobody. I, I, today, if we ran across each other, he wouldn't go, hey, Kyle, how are you? If so, I'd be like, ah! like, how? But he doesn't know me. 
You know who I do know? My wife. You know why? Because we're in relationship. She knows when I'm joyful and when I'm sorrowful. She gets everything about me because we spend time together. She knows uh, my middle name. She knows how dumb I am. She knows the things that make me laugh and make me cry. Like She knows that. But you know what she doesn't know? How many hairs I have on my head. The length of my days. She didn't know me in my mother's womb. She didn't knit me together. She doesn't care for me so deeply that she could do everything and move the world for me. Here's the other thing. She can't save me. She may know me, but she can't save me. She can't pay the price for my sins, and she can't sustain my life. She can't be my joy, my hope, my peace, my self-control. All she can be is my wife. All that stuff belongs to Jesus. And I'm asking you today, a God that knows you that much and loved you so much that he sent himself and died for your sins, isn't he worthy of giving your life to? He was for me. And I hope he is for you. Here in a minute, and I want you to know how our services work, we're going to have a time of invitation. In fact, Grant, why don't you and your team go ahead and come. Um, I, I want them to move so that you'll see them. So you, as we go to a prayerful time and as we prepare our hearts, you're not distracted by that movement. They're going to sing a song. We're going to have an opportunity to worship once again. But I'm going to invite you right now to come here in a minute. Maybe it's to kneel and pray. You're going to see people come and gather together and pray and seek the Lord's face together. And I'm going to ask this. Those of y'all that come and pray, my faithful groups of people, I'm going to ask you to pray for one purpose today, that people would come to know Jesus. Make that your prayer purpose this morning. Maybe today you would come and you'd kneel. Um, these are stairs. We call them an altar, that you would kneel at the feet of Jesus today and that you would pray and ask God to speak over your heart, over the hearts of people you know that don't know him. Maybe today you need to talk to somebody. You're going through something. You need prayer or Maybe you want to pray for someone, or maybe it's just you. Maybe you need Jesus Christ today. I'm going to invite you into this time with us. I'm going to invite you to come and pray and join us in this time. And maybe you would come and tell one of us, I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to surrender all. Man, what a greater joy I have in my life than that, is showing somebody how to follow after Jesus. That's it. So, why don't you stand with us? Let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for this time of worship, for this time of decision-making. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask God that you would watch over this time with us. Lord, would you speak over our hearts, Lord? Would you heal us, Lord? Lord, we need you in this time, Lord, to, Lord, speak to my friends that don't know you as Savior and Lord. Lord, they, they know a lot about you, but they don't know you. Lord, and that doesn't save us. Lord, what saves us is you who died for our sins, who saves us in our belief that you are exactly who you say you are, if we would believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, the Bible says we can be saved. So Lord, would you do that today in the lives of my friends in this room? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.